We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I've been a police officer for my county for almost a decade. Over the years, I've encountered my fair share of crazy and disturbing incidents that have made me question why I ever chose this career path. However, there's one night that still haunts me more than any other. It was nearing the end of winter, and in the area where I'm stationed, the cold weather persists until mid-spring. On this particular night, I was scheduled to patrol the major highway for most of my shift. Typically, my nights on patrol were uneventful. I'd pull over a few speeding cars and maybe respond to a backup call, but nothing too out of the ordinary. I was cruising along the highway, doing my usual rounds, when it was approaching two in the morning. I passed by a car parked on the side of the road, a sight I hadn't seen earlier in my shift. Its headlights were off, and it was positioned far on the shoulder of the highway, so I didn't notice it until I had already driven past. Curiosity peaked, I decided to exit at the next ramp and make a full circle back to where I had seen the car. I assumed it was just an abandoned vehicle that I hadn't noticed earlier, so I wasn't in any hurry. Parking about 15 feet behind the car, I left my headlights on and radioed in to report that I was investigating a presumably empty vehicle on the southbound highway. I stepped out of my patrol car, flashlight in hand, and approached the mysterious vehicle. My initial impression was of how old and decrepit it looked. It appeared to be something straight out of the 90s, covered in rust, dents, and scratches. As I moved closer and peered inside, my unease deepened. In the back seat, there was a pile of clothes that seemed to belong to a young woman, but the way they were scattered about didn't sit right with me. I decided to check the other side of the car, but then a faint sound from behind me made me freeze in my tracks. I quickly swung around, pointing my flashlight into the dense woods that flanked the highway. The noise stopped instantly, but I had heard enough to know that it was the sound of footsteps. Someone was out there, possibly watching me. With adrenaline coursing through my veins, I yelled out, ordering whoever was in the woods to step into the light with their hands raised. A moment passed, and then I shouted again, but there was only silence. My heart pounded in my chest as I updated my situation over the radio and requested backup. I continued to stand there, my flashlight fixed on the tree line, fear gnawing at my insides. If something sinister had occurred here, there was every reason to believe that whoever was lurking in the darkness would do anything to prevent me from uncovering the truth. I raised my firearm cautiously and moved further behind the car, maintaining a vigilant watch over the ominous woods. The next five minutes felt excruciatingly long, each second a tormenting reminder of the danger that lurked in the shadows. Finally, the sound of another patrol car pulling onto the scene provided a glimmer of hope. As soon as the backup officer arrived, we began searching the vehicle for clues. It became clear that something ominous had transpired, and my unease intensified. We found signs of violence inside the car and an empty ammunition package, suggesting the presence of a firearm. The knowledge that someone had been watching me, perhaps even targeting me with a weapon, was chilling beyond words. The following day, we conducted a more thorough investigation, but the car was untraceable, and any shoe prints found in the woods quickly faded without leading us in any specific direction. The truth of what transpired that night remains an enigma, an open case with no leads on suspects or victims. It's an unresolved mystery that continues to haunt my thoughts, leaving me unable to shake the feeling that something truly sinister occurred on that fateful night. When I was around eight or nine years old, my family suddenly stopped visiting my maternal grandmother. It took me a while to realize that we weren't seeing her anymore. However, 
When the realization finally hit me, I didn't question it much. I understood, even at that young age, that it was a sensitive and painful subject. It was inconceivable for me to think that my mom had just stopped talking to her own mother. The idea frightened me deeply, so I pushed it aside, as kids often do. As I grew older, I learned the reason behind their estrangement. They had a vicious argument one day and decided to cut ties. Their relationship had never been great during my mom's childhood, but I didn't want to delve into the painful past. As I matured, I felt a growing contempt for my grandmother. Whatever she had done had left my mom heartbroken, and there was no other word for it. I was more than willing to forget about a person who had hurt my mom so much, regardless of whether she was a blood relative or not. Then, one day around Thanksgiving of 2016, my mom called me with shocking news. Grandma was dying, and if I wanted to see her before she passed, I needed to visit her that week. Knowing she was on her deathbed changed everything for me. I seriously contemplated going to visit her, but when I asked where she was, the answer I received stunned me. I had been somewhat surprised that Grandma was still alive, but what shocked me even more was when my mom revealed that Grandma was in Burlington at a place called Chittenden. The name meant nothing to me at the time, and it still doesn't now that I reflect on it. I asked my mom if Chittenden was a residential home or something similar. Her reply sent a chill down my spine. Chittenden RCF, honey. Your grandma is in prison. Sometimes people ask if you're sitting down before delivering bad news. I understand why now. While I didn't come close to passing out, I felt as though I had retreated into myself. I couldn't find the words to speak for what felt like a full minute. It was as if my mind had become a psychic bottleneck, a thousand questions trying to escape all at once, but not a single one making it out of my mouth. I briefly considered driving to my mom's place for an in-person conversation, but my curiosity got the better of me. With each passing second, it burned brighter and brighter until I couldn't wait any longer. I sat on my couch, cradled my head in my hands, and asked my mom to tell me everything over the loudspeaker. My mom had endured a rough childhood, and my grandmother was at the root of it all. I wouldn't go so far as to label her as a psycho, as it would be an insult to psychos everywhere. According to my mom, grandma's cruelty wasn't chaotic. It was calculated. I won't delve into every instance of abuse, as that would take all day, but take my word for it, she was possibly the worst mother one could imagine. Mom endured it for years, but she eventually realized that just because it was her mom didn't make it okay. This realization coincided with my birth, and Grandma surprisingly attempted to change her ways. She knew that if she didn't, there would be no chance of developing a relationship with her grandkids. This change led to regular visits until I approached double digits in age. Then, one day out of the blue, Mom received a call from a man claiming to be Grandma's attorney. Grandma was in jail, and the charges were serious. Mom thought it might be DUI-related, that maybe Grandma had been driving drunk and possibly caused an accident. But when she inquired about bail, the attorney dropped a staggering bombshell. Bail would cost in the region of half a million dollars. Mom's stomach tied itself in knots upon hearing that number, indicating the severity of the crime. Grandma hadn't been caught for a simple DUI. She was facing a lengthy prison sentence. What could she have done to warrant such a punishment? When the answer came, it left Mom in disbelief. Grandma was charged with four counts of solicitation to commit murder, four counts of conspiracy to commit murder, and one count of being an accessory to murder. In short, she had attempted to hire a hitman to kill her neighbors. Grandma had been in an ongoing dispute with a neighboring family of young professionals, with two young children. We never found out the exact cause of the feud, but instead of finding a peaceful solution, Grandma resorted to a shocking plan. She went online and attempted to hire a contract killer to eliminate her neighbors. She didn't just want the two parents dead, she wanted the entire family to suffer a brutal and gruesome death. As it turned out, the person Grandma was talking to wasn't a hitman, but an undercover cop. It almost felt like a scene from a dark comedy movie. A sweet old lady trying to hire hitmen over a dispute about dog poop. But the reality was far from funny. It revealed the true nature of my grandmother, 
who was anything but sweet. She might have had an undiagnosed mental illness, but that didn't excuse the hell she put my mom through for the first 20 years of her life. She was willing to spend a significant portion of her life savings to ensure the gruesome demise of the neighboring family, all over some perceived slight that they were barely aware of. I chose not to visit her, and about a month later we heard that she had passed away. Her final words involved bequeathing her possessions to an old cellmate, with no mention of her family. Sometimes I wonder if she would have even recognized me if I had visited. But that's okay because I wouldn't have recognized her either, especially not after learning the true depths of darkness within her. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I own a janitorial business that specializes in cleaning office buildings for mid to large size companies. Due to the nature of the job, we start our shifts at 6 p.m. on weekdays because most offices didn't want us inside during business hours while their employees were working. On this particular day, I arrived at the scheduled office building at 6.30 p.m., punched in the keypad passcode, and donned my janitorial gear. After locking the doors securely behind me, I was ready to begin my night's work. The building was only two stories tall, which was smaller than most but both floors were unusually long, and there was a smaller basement level. I decided to start on the second floor and work my way down, as was my usual routine. My first task was to collect all the trash and pick up anything that might obstruct my cleaning. After tying up the bags, I hauled them out to the dumpsters at the back of the building to dispose of them properly. As I was outside in the dimly lit back area, I noticed two parked cars. Neither of them was running, which struck me as odd. This building was the only one nearby, and nobody was supposed to be here at this hour. I couldn't fathom why these cars were parked in the shadows, or where their occupants could be if not inside their vehicles. Returning inside, I double-checked to ensure that all the doors were locked before continuing with my work. However, I couldn't shake the nagging feeling that something was amiss. Periodically I glanced out the windows to see if there were any developments with the parked cars, but they remained stationary. Finishing up the top floor, I made my way down to the first floor, repeating the same cleaning process. This time, when I went outside to toss the trash, I noticed that a single light had come on in one of the cars. Almost as soon as I stepped out, however, it abruptly switched off. This sent a shiver down my spine, and I quickly disposed of the trash anxious about the situation. Returning inside, I couldn't ignore the unease that had settled in my gut. The realization that someone was inside one of those cars made the situation even stranger. Determined to finish my work as swiftly as possible, I completed the first floor by 11 p.m., which was significantly quicker than usual. All that remained was the small basement level, which was mostly used for storage. While I was working down there, I heard a sudden thud echoing through the building. The sound came from one of the floors above, but its exact source or location was unclear. I set down my cleaning equipment and began climbing the stairs to investigate, but halfway up, I froze. Voices, two men talking in normal conversational tones, echoed down the upper hallway. Their casual chatter suggested they had no fear of encountering me. Fearfully, I retreated down the stairs and concealed myself behind some stacks of boxes. My trembling hands dialed 911 as I listened to the approaching footsteps. Before I could even say a word to the dispatcher, the footsteps began descending towards the basement. I could only see the shadow of one of the men on the wall, but it was enough to make my heart race. He walked around, appearing to search for something, then called out to his companion upstairs. No, I don't see anyone. I think we're good. He ascended the steps, and I dared to peek out one last time, catching a glimpse of him holding something small in his hand. 
That sight sent a fresh wave of terror coursing through me. I reconnected with the 911 operator and provided as much information as I could, then huddled behind the boxes, waiting in agonizing silence. Several minutes passed, and I believed the men were mostly on the upper floors. But then, they returned to the first floor. Panic surged within me when one of them exclaimed, Their van is still here. Both of their footsteps began rushing around, but they did not leave. They were searching for me. Struggling to control my breathing, I listened as they ran through the building, moving objects above me. Eventually, their heavy footsteps hurried down the basement stairs. One of the men started tossing boxes around, searching every corner, but the distant sound of sirens approaching caught the other man's attention, and he alerted his companion. In a frantic scramble, they fled the scene. I remained hidden until a police officer arrived to rescue me from my hiding place. It took only two hours for the two suspects to be apprehended. They declined to disclose their motives for breaking in, but some stolen items were found in their cars. It's safe to say that they weren't the brightest criminals, as they seemed to rely on guessing whether I had left instead of checking for my van. Nevertheless, the chilling experience of them not leaving after discovering I was inside is something I will never forget. Thankfully, I never had to find out what would have happened if they had found me. In July of this year, I finally decided to move out of my parents' apartment, as I had secured a steady job and yearned for some semblance of independence. I embarked on the search for an affordable apartment within my city, and luck was on my side when I found one just a two to three minute walk away from my parents' place. It seemed perfect. I'd get to live alone while still having the comfort of knowing my parents were nearby for visits and the occasional breakfast together. The apartment itself, though nothing extravagant, suited me just fine. It had a long corridor that connected each room, with my front door at the very beginning of the hallway. My bedroom was the second room on the left. Unfortunately, the walls in the building were quite thin, making it easy to hear the voices and activities of other tenants. Last week, after a casual night out at the pub with a few friends, I returned home around 10, 15, or 10.30 in the evening. Given that I had the day off the next day, I decided to take a shower and then settled into my bed to watch some Netflix. It was around midnight when I first heard a faint, gentle knocking sound coming from my front door. I paused the show I was watching and listened intently for a minute or so, thinking that my mind might be playing tricks on me. Convinced it was nothing, I resumed watching Netflix. But once again, the sound of a two-motion knock reached my ears. This time, it was a bit louder and more deliberate. I sat up in bed, puzzled and slightly on edge. I got out of bed and approached the front door, peering through the peephole. To my surprise, all I could see was pitch blackness outside. I shrugged it off, assuming it was just my imagination, and returned to my room. However, before I could even sit down properly, I heard a slightly louder knock. 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 At this point I thought it might be one of my friends playing a prank on me. I dialed my friend's number and asked him if he was the one knocking on my door. He paused for a moment and replied, Dude, I'm at home. I've got an early morning tomorrow at 7.30. I believed him and hung up the phone. I had been speaking rather loudly on the phone, so if it were my friends pranking me, they would have likely heard me. As soon as I ended the call, I heard another knock. This time, I was irritated. I walked back to the door, glanced through the peephole, and saw nothing once more. Determined to catch the prankster, I unlocked the door and quickly swung it open. But there was no one there. I stepped outside, scanning the empty hallway, but there was no sign of anyone. Feeling angry and a bit intoxicated, I decided to stake out and wait for the person responsible. I remained silent and peered through the peephole for a solid ten minutes. Suddenly, I was startled as I watched a hand cover the peephole from the outside, followed by yet another knock. My heart raced, and I immediately began unlocking the door again. Without thinking, I ran out into the apartment hall. I could hear someone hastily descending the stairs, 
and the sound of their jacket brushing against the wall echoed in the dimly lit corridor. I chased after the mysterious intruder, taking a few steps down the staircase, before realizing that he had stopped behind a corner, waiting to ambush me. Panic surged through me, and I quickly retreated back into my apartment, locking the door behind me. My heart pounding, I dialed the police and explained the situation. They arrived within a few minutes, conducting a thorough search of the building and the surrounding area, but they couldn't find anyone. The officers reassured me, suggesting that it might have been some mischievous kids pulling a prank. They advised me never to chase after someone in such a situation. To put my mind at ease, they stationed a patrol car near the building for the rest of the night, and the knocking ceased. It could have been a simple case of juveniles acting foolishly, but what gave me the creeps was the fact that the person had stopped behind the corner, not fleeing entirely. It seemed more like an intentional act of intimidation. Now, a week has passed since that unsettling night, and the knocking has not returned. Still, I can't help but remain on edge, always expecting the unexpected when I walk into my apartment. The lingering feeling of unease keeps me cautious and vigilant, wondering if there might be more to this eerie experience than meets the eye. I'm a 23-year-old guy, and a few years ago, I found a job at a local grocery store while juggling community college. My main goal was to earn some extra cash to cover my expenses and enjoy the occasional outing with friends. As the months passed, I became accustomed to the regular customers who frequented the store. Most of them were friendly or just average, but there was this one customer who always struck me as peculiar. This mysterious man would visit the store nearly every night around 9, which was just an hour before closing time. His routine was strange. He'd wander aimlessly through the store for what felt like an eternity before selecting only a few items and heading to the checkout. I couldn't fathom why he spent so much time perusing the aisles only to purchase so little. His behavior, coupled with his unkempt appearance and perpetually dirty clothes, left me with the impression that he might be homeless or living out of his car. Weeks turned into months, and this strange pattern continued. I had grown somewhat accustomed to his odd presence, chalking it up to the idiosyncrasies of working in retail. Then, one fateful night, everything changed. As usual, he strolled into the store, but instead of his usual meandering, he made a beeline for my register. I greeted him with a friendly smile and asked if he needed assistance. For a moment, he simply stared at me, his expression unreadable, before finally breaking the silence by inquiring if I drove the old Toyota parked in the lot. I felt a shiver crawl up my spine at his question. How did he know that? Despite my unease, I confirmed that it was indeed my car, hoping to discern the reason behind his inquiry. Without uttering another word, he maintained his poker face and walked away from the register, leaving me bewildered. Something felt off, so I asked my co-worker to keep an eye on the register while I ventured to the front of the store to observe the parking lot. My car appeared normal, without any visible issues. Puzzled but not alarmed, I returned to my post, planning to question the man when he reached my register. However, the minutes turned into hours, and the man never came to check out. The store closed, and I couldn't help but feel a sense of foreboding as I left work that night. I meticulously inspected my car from every angle, but nothing seemed amiss. I was left with a gnawing sense of confusion. The next day I anticipated the man's return, eager to confront him about his odd behavior and the question about my car. However, he remained absent from the store for an entire month, leaving me with lingering questions and an eerie feeling in the back of my mind. Then, one fateful Saturday night, I clocked out of work as usual. This night, in particular, was unique as I was the sole cashier on duty, and I would be leaving the store alone at closing time. As I walked through the parking lot towards my car, an inexplicable sensation washed over me, a gut feeling that something was terribly wrong. Maybe it was hindsight, or perhaps it was genuine intuition, but I couldn't shake the sensation that something was amiss. I quickened my pace, my heart pounding in my chest, and reached my car. The parking lot appeared empty, 
with nothing out of the ordinary to justify my unease. I started the engine and was about to put the car in drive when I heard the faintest noise from directly behind me. In the dimly lit interior, I caught a fleeting glimpse of movement in the rearview mirror. Panic surged through my veins, and I acted on instinct, abandoning the car and sprinting several spaces away. My gaze remained fixated on the back seat, where I saw a shadowy figure shifting. I didn't hesitate. I bolted back into the store, frantically dialing the police. When they arrived, my car was empty, and there were no signs of forced entry. It was as if the intruder had vanished into thin air. I couldn't shake the feeling that it was the strange man from weeks ago. Had he been lurking, waiting for the right moment? Did he possess an illicit key to my car, or had I carelessly left the doors unlocked one fateful night? While I believed I had locked them that night, the possibility of a momentary lapse in judgment nagged at me. It was chilling to think that I had come so close to driving away that night, oblivious to the presence in my back seat. Who knows what horrors awaited me had I left the parking lot. The unanswered questions and the unsettling encounter haunted me for a long time, a chilling reminder of the dangers that can lurk in the most unexpected places. I've always said that plumbing is more than just a job. It's a calling. Most folks think of it as a low-level trade, something not worth a second glance. But I know better. Without plumbers like me, the world would be a much messier place. No clean water, homes flooded with sewage. We do the dirty work that most would rather forget. My name is Bob, and I've been a plumber for as long as I can remember. I work for a big land development company now overseeing the plumbing for large projects. It's tough work, but someone's got to do it. And honestly, I love it. There's something about solving complex problems and seeing a building come to life that gets my blood pumping. I wouldn't trade it for anything, or so I thought until that one fateful night. We were working on a huge project at the base of a dam in California. It was an ambitious undertaking, to say the least. The area used to be a floodplain, but after years of drought, it was redrafted as potential housing land. With the change in status came a lot of interest, and the bidding for the contract was intense. My firm landed the job, but it came at a cost. We had to hire a bunch of outside contractors, and keeping track of everything was a nightmare. The land itself was a beast. We faced landslides, sinkholes, and severe soil erosion. It felt like nature itself was against us. The construction schedule turned into a minefield of delays and unforeseen problems. It was, to put it bluntly, a mess. As the plumbing supervisor, I was in charge of overseeing the water, gas lines, and drainage systems for the entire operation. The last few months had been particularly taxing. I took the job mainly because of my disability. Years of hands-on plumbing had taken a toll on my body, especially my back. Two herniated discs later, I had to step back from the labor-intensive part of the job. Thanks to my company's insurance, I could manage my condition, but I transitioned more into a supervisory role. That was all well and good until you get a call in the middle of the night about a plumbing emergency that only a supervisor can handle. One night, that's exactly what happened. I woke up to my phone ringing off the hook. I had missed four calls. Grumbling, I rolled out of bed, the pain in my back a sharp reminder of my physical limitations. Tony, one of the new guys on my team, was on the other end of the line. He was shouting so loudly I had to pull the phone away from my ear. What's the situation? I asked, trying to rub the sleep from my eyes as I got dressed. He finally calmed down enough to explain. A storm drain had collapsed because of the recent heavy rains, creating a huge chasm in the ground. It broke through a wall, flooding two of the three subfloors. And of course, it had to be the wall where most of the gas lines and water lines were anchored. The pumps were struggling to keep up with the influx of water. I let out a deep sigh as I resigned myself to what was ahead. It was going to be a long, hard night. I grabbed my gear and headed out into the dark, rainy night, unaware of the nightmare that awaited me at the construction site. 
The clock read 1.23 in the morning when I pulled up to the construction site. The rain was coming down in sheets, turning the ground into a slippery mess. My headlights cut through the darkness, revealing a chaotic scene. Puddles everywhere, equipment scattered around. And in the middle of it all stood Anthony, the new guy on my team. Anthony was pacing back and forth, his face a mix of anger and panic. I could hear him muttering to himself even over the sound of the rain. It was his first big emergency on the job, and it looked like he was losing it. Next to him stood Rick, a giant of a man with a reputation for being calm under pressure. He was just standing there, staring at the flooded basement entrance, looking like he'd seen a ghost. I got out of my truck, pulling my raincoat tighter around me. The cold wind bit at my face, but I was more concerned about the disaster in front of me. Tony, what happened? I shouted over the rain. He spun around, his eyes wild. The whole damn system collapsed, Bob. The storm drain gave way, and now the basement's flooded. It's a disaster. I nodded, trying to keep my own frustration in check. This was bad. Really bad. The collapsed storm drain meant that the water had nowhere to go but into our construction site, and with the gas lines and water lines damaged, we were looking at a potentially dangerous situation. Okay, Tony, calm down. We need to assess the situation and figure out what to do next, I said, trying to sound more confident than I felt. Tony just shook his head, throwing his hands up in the air. I'm done, Bob. This is above my pay grade. I'm out. And with that, he stormed off, leaving me and Rick in the pouring rain. I sighed, watching Tony's taillights disappear into the night. I turned to Rick, who was still standing by the basement entrance. Rick, you all right? I asked, concerned. He was usually the rock of the team, but tonight he looked shaken. Yeah, I'm fine, he said, but his voice was off, like he was holding something back. It's just... A mess down there, Bob. I've never seen anything like it. I nodded, trying to push down the uneasy feeling growing in my gut. All right, let's take a look and see what we're dealing with. We made our way to the basement entrance. The water was already up to our knees, and the sound of it rushing into the basement was like a roar in my ears. The emergency pumps were working overtime, but they couldn't keep up with the sheer amount of water. I shone my flashlight into the basement, the beam of light cutting through the darkness. What I saw made my heart sink. The flood had reached critical levels, and with the damage to the gas and water lines, we were looking at a major repair job. Okay, Rick, we need to shut off the main valves and try to contain the damage. Can you handle that? I asked, hoping to give him something to focus on. Rick nodded, a determined look on his face. Yeah, I've got it, Bob. I watched as he waded into the water, moving with purpose. I knew I had to stay and deal with the mess, but part of me wished I could just turn around and leave it all behind. This was going to be a long, long night. The basement was like a scene from a disaster movie. Water everywhere, the sound of it rushing in a constant, overwhelming drone. I waded through the icy water, my flashlight beam bouncing off floating debris. My mind was racing with what needed to be done, but my body was screaming from the cold and my aching back. I started with what I could control, the main valves. The water was waist-high, and I had to fight against the current to reach them. Turning them off was a struggle, but it felt good to do something tangible, something that stopped the chaos from getting worse. At least the gas was now off, reducing the risk of a bigger disaster. The emergency pumps were working hard, but they weren't enough. I needed to clear the debris clogging the drains to give the water somewhere to go. It was a grueling task, made worse by the cold water numbing my legs and the constant fear of what else might be lurking beneath the surface. As I worked, a strange sound caught my attention. It was a splash, distinct from the noise of the flooding water. It came from the direction of the collapsed wall. My heart raced. Was it just the building settling? Or was there something more to it? Curiosity got the better of me. I had to know what caused that sound. I made my way toward the collapsed wall, the sense of foreboding growing with each step. The flashlight beam revealed a gaping hole in the wall, 
opening into what looked like a cavern. I hesitated for a moment. This was beyond anything I'd seen in my years of plumbing. The opening seemed to beckon me, a dark, gaping maw leading into the unknown. Was I really going to do this? Was I going to step into this unknown darkness? I took a deep breath and decided to push on. Maybe this cavern was the key to understanding the flooding. Maybe it was just a natural formation. Either way, I had to know. The water grew colder as I approached the hole. I could feel the air change, a chill that seemed to come from within the cavern itself. I shone my flashlight into the darkness, and for a moment I was struck by the eerie beauty of it. The light revealed a large space, with water-carved tunnels leading off into the darkness. It was then that the full weight of the situation hit me. We were dealing with something much bigger than a simple plumbing issue. This was a force of nature, a reminder of how small and insignificant our human endeavors can be against the might of the earth. I backed away from the opening, a mix of awe and fear churning in my stomach. I had work to do, a job to finish, but the sight of that cavern stayed with me, a haunting image that I couldn't shake off. I turned back to the basement, ready to tackle the next problem, but part of me was still lost in that dark, mysterious cavern, wondering what secrets it held and what dangers it might bring. The basement was a maze of darkness and rushing water. I was neck deep in the job, literally and figuratively, cutting away damaged lines and trying to reroute the water flow. My body ached, my mind was foggy from lack of sleep, but I had to keep going. The job needed to be done, and I was the only one there to do it. Then, everything changed in an instant. The generators sputtered and died, plunging the basement into complete darkness. Panic gripped me as I fumbled for my headlamp. The only sound was the water, which now seemed menacing in the pitch black. I tried to stay calm, telling myself that I just needed to get the generators back up. But deep down, I knew something was very wrong. The generators had enough fuel. They shouldn't have died like that. A cold chill ran down my spine, and for the first time that night I felt truly scared. I moved towards the generators, my feet unsteady in the rushing water. That's when I heard it. A splash, different from the sound of the water around me. Something had moved in the darkness. I froze, every nerve on edge. Was someone else down here with me? or something worse. I shook off the fear and focused on the task at hand. I had to get the lights back on, but as I reached the generators, I stumbled. My foot caught on something and I fell forward, my headlamp flickering as I hit the water. Pain shot through my arm as I felt something sharp pierce my skin. I struggled to push myself up, but my arm was caught on something. Panic set in as I realized I was trapped, impaled by a piece of rebar from the collapsed wall. The water rose around me, cold and suffocating. I fought against the rebar, but it was no use. I was stuck, and the water was getting higher. I couldn't believe it. After all these years of hard work, after surviving everything the job had thrown at me, was this how it was going to end? I was struggling to keep my head above water, each breath a battle. The pain in my arm was unbearable, but it was the fear of drowning that truly terrified me. I thought of my family, my friends, the life I still wanted to live. I wasn't ready to give up, not yet. Just when I thought it was over, when I was about to succumb to the darkness, I felt strong hands grabbing me. I was pulled from the rebar and dragged through the water. I couldn't see who it was, but I knew it had to be Rick. He had come back for me. As we reached the stairs, I felt the cool air of the outside world. I was alive. Rick had saved me, but as I lay there, gasping for breath, I couldn't shake the feeling that something wasn't right. Why had the generators failed? What was that splash in the darkness? And how had Rick found me just in time? Those questions haunted me as I slipped into unconsciousness, the pain and exhaustion finally taking their toll. But one thing was certain, I was alive, and I owed it all to Rick. I woke up in a stark white hospital room, the sterile smell of antiseptic filling my nostrils. My arm throbbed with a deep, unrelenting pain, and my whole body felt like it had been run over by a truck. Tubes and wires were attached to me, monitoring my every breath, my every heartbeat. 
The events of the night came back to me in flashes. The flooding, the darkness, the feeling of being impaled, and Rick's strong hands pulling me to safety. But as I tried to piece together the memories, a nurse walked in, her face somber. How are you feeling, Bob? She asked gently. Like I've been through a ringer, I replied, trying to force a smile. Where's Rick? I need to thank him. He saved my life. The nurse's expression changed, a look of deep sadness replacing her professional demeanor. Bob, there's something you need to know. Rick, he didn't make it. They found his body in the basement, on the other side of the breach in the wall. I felt like I'd been punched in the gut. That's impossible, I said, shaking my head in disbelief. He was the one who pulled me out. He saved me. The nurse sighed, her eyes full of sympathy. Sometimes, when we go through traumatic experiences, our minds play tricks on us. It's a way of coping with the shock and the pain. But the truth is, Rick was already gone when the rescue team arrived. I couldn't accept it. It didn't make sense. Rick had been there. I had felt his hands, heard his voice. But as the nurse continued to explain about hallucinations, about the effects of blood loss and trauma, I began to doubt my own memories. The next few days were a blur of doctors, police officers, and endless questions. Everyone wanted to know what had happened, but I couldn't give them the answers they were looking for. My story about Rick saving me was met with skeptical looks and gentle explanations about the tricks the mind can play. I felt lost, adrift in a sea of confusion and grief. But then, something happened that brought everything into sharp focus. As I was getting dressed to leave the hospital, I noticed something on my arm. A set of bruises, distinct and unmistakable. They looked like the imprint of a large hand, gripping my arm tightly. In that moment, I knew. Rick had been there. He had saved me. Whether in body or spirit, I couldn't say. But those bruises were proof that I hadn't imagined it. Rick had been my guardian angel in those dark, terrifying moments. I left the hospital with more questions than answers. But one thing was clear to me. Rick had been a hero, and I owed him my life. I didn't know how I would ever repay that debt, but I was determined to try. As I walked out into the sunlight, the events in the basement still haunted me. But I carried with me the memory of Rick's bravery, and the knowledge that sometimes, the line between the living and the dead is thinner than we think. It's funny how life can turn upside down in just a blink of an eye. Fourteen years ago, I was living a life that, though not perfect, was mine. I had a loving husband, a stable job, and dreams. But in what felt like a heartbeat, everything changed. It started with my husband, the man I thought I'd spend my entire life with. He blindsided me one evening, his words cutting through me like a knife. I'm leaving you for someone else, he said, cold and distant. I remember standing there, unable to comprehend the earth-shattering revelation. He left, and with him, he took a piece of my heart. Worse, he demanded that I leave our home, the one we had built together with love and dreams. Reeling from the shock, I sought solace in my work, but misfortune had become my shadow. The company I had dedicated over a decade of my life to faced financial ruin. I was one of the first to be let go. The pink slip felt like a betrayal. My career, which I had nurtured with hard work and dedication, was gone in an instant. I wish I could say that was the end of it, but life had more in store for me. One night, exhausted and lost in my thoughts, I fell asleep behind the wheel. The screeching of tires and the jolt as my car veered off the road are sounds and sensations I'll never forget. My car, a symbol of my independence, was wrecked beyond repair. I spent my last dime fixing it, not knowing it was just the beginning of a deeper financial abyss. The world felt like it was closing in on me. I moved into a small, drab apartment, a far cry from the warmth of what used to be my home. Nights were the hardest. I'd curl up in a corner, tears streaming down my face, mourning the life I'd lost. Friends, or those I thought were friends, turned their backs on me. 
Loneliness became my constant companion, along with a crippling depression that gripped me tight. But there was a moment, a defining one, when I realized I couldn't let this be the end of my story. I was on the brink of homelessness, and the thought terrified me. It was then I decided enough was enough. I had to pick myself up. I didn't need anyone. I had to be my own savior. I lived in a small dying mining town where job opportunities were as scarce as rain in the desert. My options were limited. So, when a job offer came from a nearby dairy farm, I grabbed it without a second thought. Preparing and taking cows for milking wasn't a childhood dream, but desperate times call for desperate measures. The farm was a new world, a stark contrast to the corporate life I was used to. The smells, the sounds, the entire atmosphere was alien to me, but it was a job, and more importantly, it was a lifeline. As I adjusted to my new reality, I often found myself reflecting on the twists and turns of life. Little did I know, my journey was about to take an even more unexpected turn, one that would challenge everything I believed about the world and myself. Life on the dairy farm was a world apart from anything I'd known. The days were long and grueling, but there was a rhythm to them, a simplicity that brought a strange kind of peace to my heart. Maybe it was the way the cows looked at me with their gentle eyes, or the endless green fields that stretched out under the open sky. It was hard, but it was honest work. Then came the day my boss, Mr. Thompson, a stern man with a heart of gold, called us all for a meeting. He needed someone to cover the night shift temporarily. Before I knew it, my hand shot up. The idea of extra pay was too tempting to pass up. Plus, working at night meant less physical labor. All I had to do was ensure everything was in order, that the cows were safe and sound. Simple, right? The first few nights were unsettling. The vast farm, so lively and bustling during the day, transformed into a different world after sunset. The darkness seemed to swallow everything, and the usual farm noises took on a sinister edge in the stillness of the night. But I needed the money, and fear wasn't a luxury I could afford. To make my night shifts more bearable, I created a little haven for myself. With a stack of hay bales, I built a cozy fortress. It wasn't much, but it was mine. Here, I'd sit with my back against the soft hay, a small headlamp lighting up the pages of my book. It was during these quiet hours, lost in stories, that I found a sense of peace I hadn't felt in years. But it wasn't all reading and relaxation. Every once in a while I'd take a walk around the farm, a flashlight in hand, making sure everything was okay. The cows usually slept soundly, and seeing them so peaceful somehow made the darkness less intimidating. One night, while I was nestled in my hay bale fortress, an idea struck me. Why stay cooped up in the small office when I could enjoy my book in the fresh night air? So, that became my new routine. Wrapped in a warm jacket, I'd lose myself in novels. The soft sounds of the farm a comforting background melody. It was on one of these nights, while I was deep into a new thriller, that I first heard it. Footsteps. They were distinct, heavy, splashing through the mud near the barn. My heart skipped a beat. Thieves, maybe? I had read about small-town thefts in the local paper. I peered out from my fortress, trying to spot the intruder. The fog that night was thick, blanketing the farm in a ghostly haze. I crept closer to the source of the sound, my flashlight cutting through the mist. But when I reached the spot, there was nobody there. The mud bore the marks of recent activity, but it was as if the person had vanished into thin air. Confused and a little spooked, I called my brother. He was always up late, lost in his world of video games. His voice was a welcome anchor to reality. He laughed off my fears, assuring me it was probably nothing, just my imagination running wild. I wanted to believe him. I needed to. So I returned to my fortress, convincing myself it was just a trick of the mind. But deep down, a seed of unease had been planted a nagging feeling that something wasn't quite right. Little did I know, that feeling was just the beginning. Back in my hay bale fortress, I tried to shake off the eerie feeling from the mysterious footsteps. 
I told myself it was just a stray animal, or perhaps my tired mind playing tricks on me. My brother's words echoed in my head, trying to offer some comfort. You're just tired, he had said. I wanted to believe him, but the unease clung to me like a second skin. I opened my book again, trying to lose myself in its pages. The words blurred before my eyes as I constantly glanced up, half expecting to see someone lurking in the darkness. The farm was silent, too silent, and it did nothing to calm my jitters. Every rustle, every creak seemed amplified in the stillness of the night. Then, it happened. A sound unlike anything I had heard before sliced through the silence. It was a guttural, slurping sound, mixed with what seemed like a gurgle. My heart raced, and a cold sweat broke out across my forehead. The sound was getting closer, moving towards my little fortress. I turned off my headlamp, plunging myself into darkness, hoping whatever it was wouldn't notice me. The sound stopped right outside my hay bale wall. I held my breath, too scared to move, too scared to even think. It was right there, on the other side of the hay bales. The silence was suffocating, and then I heard something that chilled me to the bone. It was my voice. The same words I had spoken to my brother on the phone earlier, repeated in a mocking, distorted echo. Maybe we can hang out tomorrow. I love you. The words were unmistakable, but they were twisted, as if coming from a broken speaker. My mind raced, trying to make sense of it. Was someone playing a cruel joke, or was it something... else? Panic seized me. I couldn't stay there, not with that thing, whatever it was, mimicking my voice. Adrenaline surged through me, and I bolted from my hiding place, running blindly into the night. The fog was thick, a white blanket that made it impossible to see more than a few feet ahead. I stumbled towards where I remembered parking my car, praying I was going in the right direction. The farm was a maze in the fog, and every moment I expected to feel a hand grab me from the darkness. Finally, I saw the outline of my car. Never had I been so relieved. I fumbled with the keys, my hands shaking uncontrollably. As I unlocked the car and slid inside, I heard it again, that same slurping sound, now accompanied by a soft scratching on the car roof. I started the engine, the sound of it roaring to life the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard. I wanted to speed away, but the fog forced me to crawl at a snail's pace. All the while, I felt light taps, and heard soft whispers trailing behind me, as if the thing was following, taunting me. I don't remember how long I drove, only that I was sobbing, my tears mingling with utter terror. When I finally felt safe enough, I called my boss, stammering through my fear, trying to explain the unexplainable. That night changed everything. The farm, once a place of refuge, now felt tainted, haunted by an unseen terror that spoke with my voice. I couldn't shake the feeling of being watched, stalked by something that was not just a figment of my imagination. The terror of that night lingered, a constant shadow over my heart. The morning after that terrifying night, I was a wreck. My hands still trembled, and every shadow seemed to hide a lurking horror. I couldn't shake off the image of the thing that had mimicked my voice, that had followed me in the fog. Sleep was a distant memory. Every time I closed my eyes, I heard that eerie, distorted echo of my voice. I expected a call from Mr. Thompson, my boss, thinking he would be furious. I had left the farm unattended, fled like a scared child. But when my phone finally rang, and I heard his voice, there was no anger. Instead, there was confusion, concern. He told me he had gone to the farm after my panicked call. The fog had been so thick he could barely see, but he did a quick check of the barns. What he found in one of them sent a chill down my spine. One of the pregnant cows was dead. Not just dead, but something had torn open its belly. The details were gruesome. No calf, no organs, no blood. It was as if everything inside had been scooped out, leaving an empty shell. And the strangest part? No signs of a struggle, no footprints, nothing. It was as if whatever did it had vanished into thin air. Mr. Thompson didn't fire me. He didn't even scold me. He just asked if I was okay, 
if I needed any time off. But I couldn't go back to that farm, not after what happened. The thought of being watched by something unseen, something that could mimic my voice, filled me with an unshakable dread. I went back to my day job at the farm, but things were never the same. The once comforting routine of milking and tending to the cows now felt like a walk through a minefield. Every noise made me jump. Every shadow seemed to hide a threat. I was constantly looking over my shoulder, expecting to see... something. But there was never anything there. The incident at the farm changed me. I had never been one to believe in the paranormal, in things that go bump in the night. But now, I couldn't deny that something unexplainable had happened. Something that defied logic, that defied reason. I tried to talk to people about it, but who would believe such a story? It sounded like something out of a horror movie, not real life. So I kept it to myself, this heavy secret that weighed on my soul. Months passed, but the fear never left me. It lingered like a bad dream, always at the edge of my thoughts. The farm, once a sanctuary, now felt like a prison. I knew I couldn't stay there, not with the memories of that night haunting me. So, I left. I packed up my few belongings and moved away, hoping to leave behind the terror that had gripped me. But even as I settled into a new life, the questions remained, unanswered and unanswerable. What had I heard that night? What had happened to that cow? And the most chilling question of all, had it been watching me all along? I don't know if I'll ever find the answers. But one thing is certain. That night on the farm changed everything. It opened my eyes to a world beyond understanding. A world where shadows whisper and unseen things walk. And though I've tried to forget, to move on, some nights when the darkness is heavy, I can still hear that distorted echo of my voice, calling me back to a mystery that remains unsolved. I've contemplated sharing this story for what feels like an eternity, because, to be honest, it sounds like something straight out of a horror movie. But since I cherish this community so much, I've finally mustered the courage to recount this chilling experience. Back in high school, I had a job as a closing server at the local Pizza Hut. My shift typically ended quite late, and my nightly ritual was to text my dad when I was nearly finished, not only to let him know I was on my way home, but also to gauge whether my parents were still awake. If they weren't, I'd often opt for the longer route home along the old country roads. You see, I lived on a dog breeding farm that was a good 20 minute drive outside of town. These country roads were my escape from the daily grind, a place where I could unwind and enjoy a joint or two while listening to my favorite tunes. It was on one fateful night during one of these solitary drives that things took a terrifying turn. I was cruising down a back road I knew like the back of my hand, a route my school bus had taken throughout my entire childhood. This part of East Texas was known for its dense woods, so most property owners built their homes about a quarter to half a mile deep into their land, leaving the woods as a natural buffer and barrier. This meant that while you'd come across plenty of driveways and mailboxes, actual houses were rarely visible, just the ominous woods with sporadic clearings. As I continued driving, my headlights illuminated an unexpected obstacle in the middle of the narrow dirt road. It was a toolbox, the kind you'd find in the back of a work truck. I pulled up to it and stopped, opening my car door just enough to step out while keeping a cautious distance. It was at this moment that I realized my headlights were not the only source of light on that road. Further down the road, there were other headlights, much smaller, approaching from a driveway that ran parallel to the toolbox. A creeping sense of dread began to wash over me, and I quickly retreated back into my car, closing the door with just a slight crack, ready to act at a moment's notice. My heart pounded as I watched a small riding lawnmower emerge from the trees. The person riding it was dressed in a full clown suit, complete with a mask that concealed their face. What was even more horrifying was the shotgun resting casually across their lap. As the clown turned his gaze towards me, our eyes locked and a shiver ran down my spine. With eerie calmness, he brought the shotgun up to his lap. I'm a true country boy, 
and I can sense when I'm not welcome somewhere. Before he could even raise the gun any further, my car was already in gear, speeding into the side ditch of the road. I jumped out of my vehicle, discarded my joint, and sprinted for home, not looking back. That night, I crawled into bed, shaken to my core, vowing never to speak of this horrifying encounter again. I couldn't fathom what the clown was up to, especially considering the whole killer clown craze had largely subsided by 2018 or 2019. Whether it was some misguided kid or a deranged backwoods dweller, I hoped to never cross paths with Mr. Clown ever again. Back when I was in my late 20s, I found myself in the most unexpected twist of fate. I had started dating my all-time biggest crush from secondary school, Jamila. She had always been the prettiest girl in our whole secondary school, but by the time we all got off to you and I, she had transformed into something truly stunning. We had stayed connected on Facebook, but our interactions were sporadic at best. I mostly just watched and admired her from afar, never daring to think a girl like that could be in my league. Then, during the summer when I turned 27, fate threw me a curveball. I was out drinking at a swanky bar, celebrating a friend's birthday, when, to my utter disbelief, I spotted Jamila. Over the years, I had undergone a significant transformation myself, losing weight and getting into shape during junior officer training in uni. I had become more confident and athletic, making it easier to talk to girls and secure dates. However, when faced with my old crush, my newfound confidence seemed to vanish into thin air. Despite the initial awkwardness, we began to catch up, engaging in casual small talk that soon turned into flirtatious banter. We agreed to meet up for a drink sometime, and I couldn't believe my luck. It was like I was living out that cheesy Walking on Sunshine song, and this feeling of euphoria lasted for almost six weeks as we dated. But then, as if from nowhere, the affair took a dark turn. On our final date, a minor disagreement spiraled into a heated confrontation. I won't bore you with the details, but the girl of my dreams turned out to be a complete psycho. I found myself storming out of her apartment, angry, upset, and wearing nothing but a thin shirt in the freezing winter weather. I didn't stop to think about the consequences. I just needed to be out of there for everyone's safety. As I walked away, the reality of my situation started to sink in. The cold weather was biting, and my outdated iPhone's battery was nearly dead. I was facing a three-mile walk home in near-freezing temperatures. I began sticking my thumb out at passing cars, desperately hoping for someone to stop. At first, only cabs passed by, none of them empty or with their lights on. I even resorted to holding out a $20 bill, trying to entice someone into stopping, but to no avail. My desperation grew as I contemplated jogging home in dress shoes just to avoid freezing. And then, in a stroke of luck, a lone car approached. I stuck my thumb out one last time, hardly daring to hope. To my astonishment, the driver put on the indicators, pulled over, and honked the horn as if to say, get in. I couldn't believe my luck. It felt like a Christmas miracle. I looked into the open window and recognized the driver. It was one of my old uni mates, a guy named Matt, who had returned to town to visit his family for Christmas. He said, I thought that was you, hop in. Gratefully, I got into the car, and we started driving towards my place, chatting along the way. Matt had been driving all day, and I just rolled into town when he spotted me on the side of the road. It was a pleasant surprise, and we talked about our lives my roller coaster relationship, and plans to meet for a pint or two around the new year. But then, out of nowhere, tragedy struck. Another car crashed into the driver's side door, sending us spinning out of control. It might sound cliche, but everything happened so fast that I could hardly process it. We were driving through a green-lighted intersection when we were suddenly blinded by headlights and hit. The impact was beyond description like a powerful force had struck not just the car, but my very being. I closed my eyes, holding on for dear life, feeling the world spin around me. When we finally came to a stop, I opened my eyes and gasped. The car was wrecked. The front windshield looked ready to shatter, 
and the driver's side dash was crumpled. Panic surged through me as I noticed smoke rising from under the bonnet. Fear gripped me. The car could catch fire. I turned to Matt, telling him to get out before it exploded. But when I looked at him, my heart sank. There was blood everywhere, his face unrecognizable, blood oozing from his mouth. His one good eye was wide open, but he wasn't breathing. I knew he was dead. I managed to crawl out of the car, limping to the curb as far away as possible. I just waited there in shock until the emergency services arrived. Paramedics checked me over, and although I had a bit of whiplash and some cuts and bruises, I was mostly okay. They took me to the hospital, where they kept me overnight because of the shock. The next morning I officially learned that Matt had died, but truthfully, I already knew it, having seen his condition in the car. I nodded as the hospital staff went through the motions, despite knowing I had been in the bloody car with him. The following days were filled with police interviews and a lengthy legal process. The driver of the other car, who had been drinking after an office party and was driving recklessly, ended up going to prison for manslaughter. He pleaded guilty to everything, issued a prepared statement expressing his remorse, and even wished it had been him who died. But to me and Matt's family, he was a murderer, not just an arrogant idiot who killed someone by mistake. I hoped he would carry the burden of his actions for the rest of his life just as we would. Our lives had been forever altered by that fateful collision, and it was a pain that would never truly heal.